0: We have spent a couple weeks in Hebrews uh, getting used to what the major themes are. And, of course, we see a very interesting and complex Christology. We also see references to Revelation. We're going to see that more. Um, it being chiefly now in Christ Jesus and then via the Scriptures, which are going to be attributed to the Holy Spirit. We've also got this kind of compare contrast developing between the original creation and the new creation, the old covenant of Mount Sinai, the new covenant of Mount Calvary, the old priesthood, the new priesthood, and high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're seeing a combining of these things along with his kingship that he is finally the everlasting king, and he has been coronated and crowned. Now, why is the author of Hebrews doing all of this wonderful theology? I mean, you don't need a why. It's great just to hear it. But why is he doing it? Increasingly, what we're going to see is he's concerned about apostasy. He's concerned about people turning away from the faith and abandoning. Again, because the rhetoric is framed in such a way as, hey, what we have is better than the Jews, it's thought that the apostasy would be a return to Judaism. That was the great temptation. It could return to Judaism, which was an accept- a legally accepted religion, and avoid the persecutions that were either upon them or soon to come. So that seems to be the pastoral context, and thus um, the, the end to which these purposes are serving, the, the means to which um, the end is met, um, being to try to keep people in the faith by showing them who... Christ Jesus is what's actually happening objectively in the world. I mean, our temptation, I think, is to just see this as a story, to see this as a sermon, to put partition this off in some part of our brains where it's, you know, maybe there's a separation of church and state and everything that's going on out there. But what we want to do is we want to see Jesus reigning truly, our our true high king, our true high priest. every bit as concrete and real as the president of the United States or whoever else might be leading uh, whatever country. Um, Christ is our king, and he is our high priest, and he is ruling. And we have something greater than the Old Testament scriptures. We have something greater than all the kings and authorities on the earth. We need to then frame our political understanding, our understanding of the events, current events of the world, in light of this, that Christ is in charge. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. We don't yet see all his enemies Put under his feet, and yet they even so are. And, you know, as Luther famously said, the devil is God's devil. That is, he can do all the ill he wants, and he's still only doing that ill which God permits, and which God will use for his own good and for the good of those who love him. So, there's no way you can, there's no way you can not serve God. (laughs) Even if you say, I'm gonna be his enemy, I'm gonna do everything antithetical to what he wants me to do, he's still going to Use you and use that for his own good purposes. It's inescapable. It's inevitable. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation... But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. We left off, let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, just starting chapter three. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's kind of catch ourselves back up to the argument then at the latter half of uh chapter two. Okay, so Christ, we have this development that we've we've um that's been taking place, and this theme of development continues, that through what Jesus, true God, but also true man, through what he suffers, endures, experiences, and the way that he does this, um, he he shows himself fit, becomes fit to be a great high priest. You can see this kind of idea um, back in chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting that He, that is the Father, from whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's us, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Christ, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies makes holy, in the broadest sense of that word, and those who are sanctified have one source. So he who sanctifies Christ, we who are being sanctified by Christ, we all have one source, namely the Father. And thus Christ calls us brothers. Quoting from Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. So this is the son putting his trust in the father. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And here, you know, you can see him as a, as a brother, as a fellow child. Um, or you can see him, as we kind of pondered and meditated on last week, as the Father. We see Jesus fulfilling all the vocations. Makes perfect sense. He was, he was before all of the vocations were, <laughs> and thus they have all been shaped and formed as a reflection of who he is toward us. Manifold love of God. All right, so then verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. This is his incarnation. Why was he incarnate? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Okay, So that is, death is the very weapon that Christ uses to defeat the one who has the power of death. This is a fun motif. It shows up uh, every now and again in the scriptures. Um, but most famously with David and Goliath, there's actually two answers given to this. Um, what instrument did uh david used to kill goliath slingshot with five smooth stones um that's one what's the other goliath's sword yeah so more explicitly i mean it would be fine to say he did the he he killed him he slayed him with the the slingshot that no problem and the scriptures speak that way but then giving a little more detail um when yeah when he was unconscious he david goes over and grabs Goliath's sword and offs him with his own sword. Kind of a neat thing. <laughs> um, because, because when you look at the cross, little kids get this. Sometimes they're better visual theologians than we are. When you look at the cross, what does it look like? It looks like a sword stuck in the ground, doesn't it? So you've got the Goliath of hell who uses that sword to put Jesus to death. Jesus grasps that very sword and offs the Goliath of hell's head right off, you know, clean off his shoulders. So you've got this, is as David used the giant's own weapon to defeat him, so Christ uses the devil's own weapon to defeat him, namely death. And that's spelled out here, isn't it? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. This motif comes up in various places in the scriptures, but it's, it's also just kind of the mark of the uber-champion. That you can be completely disarmed against a fully armed person, and so dominate them that you take their own weapon and slay them with it. You know, it's kind of the ultimate like victory, and that's what Christ has over the devil. All right, and then then he's going to um, deliver through this. He's going to deliver all those who, through fear of death, do we need to be afraid of death anymore? No, then neither do we need to be subject to lifelong. Slavery. Um, death is very literally the power that the world, and the principalities and powers of darkness, even just think concretely, like, what's the worst that the world can do to me? What's the worst the government can do to me? Um, they can put you to death. That's it. Well, he's destroyed the power of death, hasn't he? By dying, by rising, by guaranteeing that um, our death is no death and that we too shall rise. So then again, this is where we don't want to like partition this off in our minds as some sort of religious thought pious religious thought that isn't part of reality. No, this is foundational to reality. This is Christ has risen. Death is defeated. It is defeated for us. We need not fear. And that's that's what you see here. We don't fear death, and therefore, how easy is it to enslave us? You know, it's very easy to enslave people when you say, hey, be afraid of this. It could kill you. <gasps> Save me, tell me the magical thing I need to do to be saved. Do this, oh, okay, enslaved, no matter what it is, no matter if it's true or not. Um, so man is enslaved through the fear of death by removing from us, delivering us from the fear of death. we're free from slavery in the most profound sense, and you know, our church fathers are so good on this. I think Chrysostom's got some extended treatments along these lines. A slave who is enslaved by his body but is free in Christ is the freest man of all, and a free man who is enslaved to his sins is the most enslaved man of all. It's it's a deeper, profounder recognition of what these slaveries are. Um, but knowing that Christ has conquered death, destroying the power of um destroying the one who has the power of death, destroying the devil himself, um, crushing. The serpent's head under his heel, as Genesis would put it. Um, now we no longer have the fear of death, and thus we're no longer subject to lifelong slavery. If you will, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Jesus says. Okay, verse sixteen. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Those are. Um, this is to be understood in a technical sense as those who have faith, the faith of Abraham, not the flesh of Abraham. And. Um, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. You know, again, what is he doing by mentioning this about angels? He's heightening and elevating anthropology. That It's not a bad thing to be a human being. In fact, it's a very good thing. In fact, by Christ, by God's own Son becoming man, he has so elevated us and helped us and honored our race that the evil angels are envious. The good angels rejoice as they know the goodness of God. They know that the goodness of God and the grace of God aren't a zero-sum game. If the humans get get some, it doesn't mean we're lacking some. It's infinite goodness. Okay, and then um, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now um, you can you can even in that kind of see a language of transformation or transition. "...so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God," that's a technical liturgical language, "...to make propitiation for the sins of the people." And that's the pouring out of the blood on the mercy seat at Yom Kippur. That's what that means. So to make atonement for the sins of the people. That's our language for it. So that's what Christ is doing as our faithful high priest. But why is he made like us in every respect? Why does he endure what we have to endure? So that he can have sympathy toward us. And that's a point that the author of Hebrews is going to bring out in the next few verses. um, Not least of which, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. So there's a sense in which, again, what's in view here, it's kind of startling and astonishing to us, because we're so used to, I think as good Lutherans, we're so used to thinking in high Christology terms of like, he's true God, doesn't he already know everything, doesn't he already have everything? but And he does, just not as... God and man, there's a development that takes place in the human nature of Christ that um, allows him to come into the fullness of what it means for him to be our faithful high priest. I mean, Jesus in his flesh is tempted as we are. Jesus in his flesh suffered. He was tempted more than we are. He suffered more than we are. This gives him a, a legitimate sense of, I mean, a truly human sense of compassion for us and mercy for us. That would, in fact, yes, be impossible for God, other than, as long as we're dealing with these mutually exclusive categories, I mean, God can know all things, but it's different to know something and then experience it as a man, which is precisely what's happening here. Okay, So to know something and to experience something are two different things. And indeed, the development isn't in the divinity, but in the humanity. That's what we see happening here. All right. Well, I know that that kind of gets a little heady and a little highfalutin, but it's worth it. It's great, and what, that's a lot of what we're doing. We're with the author of Hebrews. We're praising Christ, elevating Christ, seeing him as the highest of all, and then that's going to strengthen our faith so that we aren't tempted to apostatize. So far, so good. That takes us into chapter three. I see a question in the back.
1: I know we have nothing to fear in death and we're not to fear death, but if you fear death, does that mean you're not a Christian or saved?
0: Oh, great question. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can think about fear in different ways too, can't we? Um I mean, there's, there's the fear of death that's like, you know, I don't know, you're in an airplane and suddenly it, you know, the window flies open and you're afraid. <laughs> like, I would kind of like define that sort of as like being startled. Like, you know what I mean? Um, Hopefully that makes some sense. These aren't very technical categories, but I think you'll be able to see what I mean. There's another sense of like, well, okay, maybe you get sick, really sick, and um, you you think it'd be kind of inconvenient to die right now. (laughs) So you so you do the medicines, you take the procedures. You know, I think that this becomes even more acute the more people you have depending upon you. You know, you feel even more strongly. That's kind of an aversion to death. But both of these things are kind of superficial psychological things. um, The Christian piety goes deeper than that. Well, what if you did die? Would it still be okay? Well, yeah, because Christ died for me. I have no sins. Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death. I know that though I die, yet shall I live and... I live and believe in him and so I'm not going to die this death isn't even going to be death and so that's the deepest meditation so as Christians we can have all of that we can have our sinful flesh too like raging up against that you know the deepest aspect and doubting that and being frustrated with that but I mean just because it's you know because people will do this stupid thing too they'll be like um Well, if you're not afraid of death, then why have any medicine or why have insurance or you know anything like that? And it's just stupid, you know. And but why is it stupid? Because you need to articulate these different levels of like, yeah, of course we've got a psychological fear of death and we've got an aversion to death based on you know where our sentiments are and where our duties lie. But but at the deeper level, we're at peace. We're we're actually not afraid, and that's the gospel. Yeah. So hopefully, does that help clarify a little? Okay, fair enough. I think I think it would be more accurate to say we're afraid of the process of death. Sure. Not death itself. Sure, yeah. So, I mean drowning scares me to death. Oh yeah. <laughs> drowning, anything like that. Or nah, like that's... you say a window open on a jet airliner, you know. That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um sure. Yeah, we can be afraid of the process of death. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um And I had some other thought there, too. You know, oh, this I think that this is another fair way to think of, like, a legitimate... Like, what we would say in English is fear, but we'd be able to parse this out. So, I mean, death is pretty much the biggest thing that's happened to you since birth. (laughs) So, there's a sense in which it's, like, tremendous. Like, what event is there big? It's bigger than getting having kids, bigger than being married, bigger than getting confirmed, bigger than, you know, graduating, bigger... Like, just in terms of life events, there's no bigger event than death and meeting your maker and so i think that there's a sense that we can f- be filled with the the sense of awe and unease and like not knowing and that kind of like transition and just sort of like like that actually strikes me frequently when i think about it like if i think about well what if you did die today okay it'd be all right it'd be all right right. It'd be and then it kind of like like you still kind of tremble or feel your limbs getting weak just because of the magnitude of the the threshold you're stepping through, right? It's bigger than anything you've been through before. So, but again, what are we articulating here? Just kind of more like psychology, matters of how we think and feel than, than matters of faith. Right, the faith lies deeper than all of that. I think there's a parallel in the sense, like I can be, I can be acutely sad because you know my dog bit me and um, my kids despise me, and I can be acutely dispa- I can be more deeply sad because I can be despairing over the world, the condition of the world. Maybe I can even fall and in slump into a kind of uh, depression that you know has that profound sad aspect to it. Um, I can be experiencing all of this, but still at the deepest core of my being have joy have joy that's deeper than acute sorrow, joy that's deeper than mourning and pain, joy that's deeper than depression. Why? Because all of that other stuff is a matter of mind and feeling and thought, psychology, I'm calling it. Deeper than that is the matter of the soul and faith. And so I can cling to that and have joy in Christ despite all those things. And, and in fact, I can grasp hold of that as kind of an anchor in my soul, a foundation in my soul, and use that to combat some of the other things. And sometimes um, that's very helpful just in terms of bringing every thought into submission to Christ. Like, what does that actually mean? Well, something like I'm describing, you know, getting down to the root bottom of what God says, what you believe, what the soul clings to, and then using that to dominate these other thoughts, feelings, fears, psychology, etc. Okay, Um, thank you for that. That was very helpful. All right, so that takes us into chapter 3 then. Um, Therefore, holy brothers, isn't that a great statement? Therefore, holy brothers. Holy on account of what? Well, in context, on account of his propitiation for the sins of the people. That's verse 17. And because that propitiation is so full, so sufficient, so comprehensive, without any equivocation or any qualification, the author can simply say, Therefore, holy brothers. (laughs) Fantastic. You who share... In a heavenly calling. Now um, we begin to make a difficult transition here, um, but, an, but an important one. The next, I think, the next, yeah, you know, let me say, the next chapter or two really kind of defies a, an easy, simplistic. Understanding. It really desires you, calls you to, and the author of Hebrews will even kind of do this later on when I say, let's depart from these really basic fundamental teachings. Um, he's going to be dealing with some stuff here that's quite ponderous. And again, eludes a real simple, well, this is exactly what he means, this and nothing more. Um, and so I, you know, I just kind of invite you to enjoy this with me. Um, because and, and so here's the first indication, I think, um, this transition that we have a Heavenly calling. So, in this very real, concrete domain of heaven, we can't see or perceive, and yet we know it's there. Um, That is where our calling is, and that calling has entered time and space, entered our lives, manifesting itself in the call of God to be baptized, which you are, manifesting itself in the preaching of God, ongoing into your ears, manifesting itself in... His invitation that you come to his supper, but it is in fact a heavenly calling that we are all receiving right now. We are all participants in this heavenly calling. And the more we can wrap the, our minds around this, and this is altering the intention of this scripture is to alter our perception of reality such that we live in a less deluded way. It's trying to wipe away from us the cobwebs of delusion and the way we perceive everyday life. And it's trying to get us to see how it really is, objectively speaking. <clears throat> it's a process and it's fitful and it's back and forth on account of the unbelief of our flesh and our flesh's perception. But this is a, um, we share in a heavenly calling. Note that it's, it's really, properly speaking, one calling that we all share in. It's not, It's not unique, it is specific or individual, but it's not unique, it's not special, it's common to us all. So therefore, holy brothers, you who are in a heavenly calling, a heavenly vocation as Christians, consider Jesus, now fascinating, the Apostle. Here is, as far as I can recall, the only place in the scriptures where Jesus is explicitly called the Apostle. Um, isn't it? But you can think of what um, Jesus says, like for example, in John's Gospel, "As the Father has sent me, the apostello, the sending from, the sending forth, um, as the Father has apostled me, even so I am apostling you. I am sending you forth." So here we can see that even Jesus is the capital A apostle. And the other apostles are all small A apostles. Jesus is the high priest. All the other priests are small P priests. Um, so you, yeah, you've got uh, you have this beautiful statement that he is the apostle, the sent one, the one sent from God who sends out himself, and the high priest, the high priest. Now the assumption again, you can see how. His audience is likely a Jewish Christian audience, you know, a converted audience. But they know what the high priest is. They know that if there's a high priest, there are other priests who are not the high priest. He's the apostle. And again, he's sent with a message. That's really what an apostle is. not just like, hey, who are you? I'm the guy he sent. And? Yeah, that's it. He just sent me. No, he's always got a message. And so too the high priest. Now we think of a high priest as offering sacrifices. That's true. He's got the sacrifice of propitiation we just mentioned. But a priest all, in the Old Testament would also do proclamation. He would proclaim the word and will of God. And so there's this twofold aspect as sacrificer and proclaimer. And that's what's alluded to here in this next phrase: um, the high priest of our confession. Now, in this, again, you can already see just by the word our that this is shared, but that word for, uh, confession, homo legias. So, homo, same, legias, word, same word. So this isn't here a confession of sins, but this is a confession like the way we confess a creed. And you can see the unity of the faith. Jude will put it this way, that it's the faith handed down, notice the definite article, the faith, handed down once and for all. Okay, so here you see that too, it's our faith, it's our confession, um, the way we're confessing creeds, and it is our um, homologias, our uh, word together. Okay, so it's all Again, faith is individual, it's specific, but it's not unique, it's not special. It's all of us together in the same faith, in the same calling, in the same confession, with the same high priest, with the same apostle. Does that make sense? I hope you can see the unity here, um, a major theme, um, particularly in a text where it's like, hey, don't break off from that. Don't go do your own unique thing. Don't apostatize. Don't turn away. All right, well, we continue talking about Jesus here. So he is um, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him. So that is faithful to the Father, and the Father appointed him. Again, see what's in view here. It's really all the way through Hebrews up to the point. If you just think, well, this is the Son of God, duh, of course, then you're really missing the point. This is the incarnate one, this is the human being, Jesus Christ. Of course he is divine, but the emphasis here is on his being a human. So it is the Father who appoints this man, Jesus, um, who has been faithful to him, and who then the Father through all that He brought the man Jesus Christ through, formed Him into the perfect High Priest, one who can sympathize with us, one who is utterly faithful to God and faithful to us. Um, taking that, taking that um, humanity of Christ and forming it into its fullness, its full maturation as human, uh, and as as the treasure of humanity for humanity and of humanity. Alright, so who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now if you're a Jew, who is the greatest teacher of the of the Hebrew scriptures? Moses, hands down. There's no better teacher. He's also the mediator of the first covenant. I mean, of course, it's angelic mediation, but Moses is the mediator um, to the Israelites, to the Hebrews. Okay, so now we've got this contrast, and it's going to be similar. It's going to be one of the recurring themes, um, contrast between Moses and Jesus, who is greater. Why would you need to make this case? In case people were interested in going back to Moses and departing from Jesus. So, um, Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So, what do we have so far? Jesus is faithful, just as... Moses was faithful. Now let's, that, there's the similarity. Now let's make some distinction. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Again, look what happens. Look what the author of Hebrews is doing. It's like, you, you think to yourself, because you're a good Lutheran, well, no, duh, he's the divine. Of course he's got more glory, but that's not the point. The point is this man, Jesus, is worthy. Notice the language, worthy of more glory than Moses. On account of what? His far superior faithfulness. And faithfulness going through far more suffering. You see, there's actually a meritorious worthiness component going on here. A true justice, a true sense in which you would look at the man, Jesus Christ, and the man, Moses, and say one is greater than the other. Leave out the fact that one happens to be God. Just look at the man. And, or look at the men and um, you will see unequivocally without a doubt that Jesus is greater. That's really the argument that's going on here. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much as more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Okay? So what what is better? Um, what is of more valuable uh, or, or more value? Excuse me. Um, my daughter or the scribbled out artwork unicorn that she made? Okay, obviously my daughter. Right. Who's got more honor? The architect who could make any number of houses or the one specific house? The architect. He made it and he could make many others. Okay. And then we're going to say that this is how much greater Jesus is than Moses. Now, clearly here in this thought, a nod toward his divinity because you have this creator aspect going on, right? The builder of the house um, and then uh, the creator. So that's what's going on here. It's just a its a compare-contrast. Don't lose the forest for the trees and the technicalities of the language. That's all that's going on here. Um, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Again, I would encourage you to really press on the human angle of that. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Okay, so what's the contrast? I think this latter part, a bit of a nod to Jesus' divinity, that he's the builder. I mean, who made Moses Moses? (laughs) God, of which Jesus certainly is. Um so there's that there's that distinction being made here too. All right, um, verse five. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. That's the word to cue in on to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a, Son, how much greater is the son than the servant? So much greater is Christ than Moses. Okay. Um, so Moses is as a servant in God's house. You can think here household, you can think temple, you know, etc. Uh, it doesn't really matter all that much for this point to be made. Um, but then specifically, kind of getting into the nitty-gritty, we are told that Moses was faithful to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So those things that Moses testifies of don't find their fulfillment except in Christ and what he speaks. Now you can see how Moses himself is a servant of the Son, and why it is that Moses himself proclaims that one like him but greater than him will come. Moses very was entirely a Christian, entirely christian that's the point and i think that that's maybe the the rhetorical punch of that little phrase like why would you add that why would you think why would that be necessary you're you're already doing this jesus greater than Moses. why would you add that in look if you would return to moses where would moses point you Back to Jesus! He's the, he was the one in the first place speaking about Jesus, right? So, that's how that rhetoric would work in terms of the, the temptation to apostatize and go back to Judaism, go back to the quote-unquote Hebrew faith, as you'd find Moses pointing you back to Jesus saying, what are you doing? <laughs> Alright, Um let's finish out uh, verse 6. So you've got these, you've got these, um, the servant of God's house and the son of God's house. And then we have this conclusion. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now both of these ideas, the confidence and our boasting and our hope are synonyms for faith. So that's, that's basically what we're talking about. These are different ways of articulating the concept of faith. I mean, see if it works. We are his house if indeed we hold fast to our faith. Yeah, of course. That's what it means. But now here he flavors faith with confidence. Not doubt. Confidence. Why? Because faith isn't based in itself. Faith is based in the word of God. The promise of God in Christ Jesus. That's why faith can be confident. Certain. Even to the point of what? <laughs> Boasting, which we would think of as over-the-top, arrogant, out-of-place, but not so, because faith's boast isn't in itself. Faith's boast is in God has promised, God has sworn, God does not lie. It's sure and certain. I'd bet anything on it. Because God hath said. That's the boasting in our hope. So confidence, boasting, confessing, all of these things like bold, and they're all meant to be, like, reflective of the reality of faith. We can be all these things because faith says, I've got no strength or worthiness of my own, but he does, and he doesn't lie. Okay. Let's pause there. Let's see if you have any thoughts or reflections. Look, this section, as I said, really kind of begins a, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's arguably the whole book, but for my money, this section begins a, a kind of, a kind of way that invites, um, Contemplation, meditation it isn't really you can't really commodify it down into a slick little and this is exactly what it means and nothing else so um, but if you do have any thoughts or meditations you'd like to share any questions or anything I made unclear, feel free All right all right then let's um let's go on. Now this is when you just gain a lot of respect for a guy. Okay, because this is a, this is a, what we would call a throwaway line. It's just like a detail. But look what he does. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his, wait a minute. What is today if you hear his voice? What's that coming from? Psalm 95. The scriptures. Wait, but who is it really coming from? The Holy Spirit says. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that fantastic? See, this is where you gain a lot of respect for a guy. Because he's not going to beat you over the head. He's not going to say, and now I will digress into a doctrine of uh, inerrancy of Scripture and inspiration of Scripture. No, he just rolls right into it. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says. Now, if we can say this of Psalm 95, can we say this of the rest of the Scriptures? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit hath said. Um... There's this play on words sometimes between um, breathed and spirit. And you have this, um, St. Paul refers to the scriptures as being um, God breathed, thea or panoimatos, whatever the ending is. But theos, God, and pneuma, spirit. So you've got this spirit breath thing going on. Um and so Paul articulates this, the author of Hebrews articulates this that the scriptures are God breathed, they're they're of the Holy Spirit speaking, even though they manifest in the you know idiosyncrasies and nuances and abilities of whatever human being it is, it's the Holy Spirit inspiring that within the human being. Um, and, and so, this is a glorious commendation of the Scriptures to us, and a commendation of the unity of the Scriptures. I mean, as you know, the vicar and I were kind of talking. As much fun as it is to kind of say, "Well, how does how does John the evangelist look at things over and against how Luke is looking at things, and how Matthew is looking at things?" And you can find little differences and distinctions and nuances. And well, for Luke, glory kind of seems to mean more like this, and for John, glory seems to mean more like that. Okay, but the beautiful thing is to zoom all the way out on that and say, it's all given by the Holy Spirit. It's all penned by the Holy Spirit through these men. So you will actually, I I became so taken with this line, even as a seminarian, that you will from time to time in my sermons hear me not quote a chapter and verse of some particular book, but just simply say, as the Holy Spirit says. (laughs) stolen plagiarized as a technique right from the author of Hebrews. All right, well, what does the Holy Spirit say? Today, now here, and and we're going to do this whole meditation with him, so don't take my word for it, but pay attention. Because today is one of these enigmatic words, concepts, that the author of Hebrews is going to kind of tease out some meaning and get us to contemplate this deeper reality. So I'm only mentioning that because just pay attention so that you notice all the todays moving on um, so that you're following this kind of climactic thing that he's going to do. All right, so the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts In um, as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, here is a second word to hold on to. Rest. To think of Sabbath, okay, but more than that, we're going to talk about that. But those would be two words to attach your mind to. You just pay attention and see what the author of Hebrews does. Today and rest. These are enigmatic terms. These are theologically loaded terms. It's very difficult to know if they mean any one thing and nothing else. Probably not. Okay? Um, now, what else are we going to say? That this, um, again, I think, yeah, we, we say that this, um, if you look at the study note on chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, okay, cites Psalm 95, and that's kind of what I called out, and alludes to the rebellion of God's people in the wilderness, especially Numbers 14, where the people refused to enter the Promised Land after spies brought back a disheartening report. Remember, the spies come back and say, "Oh, it's impossible. The people are—they're all giants. They're all, you know, bodybuilders over there. Um, there's no way we can go in there." And so the people grumble against God in fear and terror. And so there's this kind of like backing away. Now what is the promised land? Here's the first flavoring of that word rest. To go into the promised land would be a rest in what sense? Well they're wandering in the wilderness. It's a great big wandering around and, you know, punctuated with nightly camping. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's a wandering it's a nomadic vagabond kind of lifestyle, and um, they're finally going to get to a place where they can be home and have rest. So that's the first way in which kind of rest begins to be colored. But these people now now is it God who's saying at this point, think of numbers that's because that's what we're referring to. Is it God who's saying to the people you can't come in? No. It is It is in the first place the people who say, we're not willing to go in. What, are you crazy, God? There's giants in there. You know, God's like, what am I? Chopped liver? (laughs) Right? Okay, so this is important to note. In the first place, it's the people who refuse to go to the promised land. Then it's God who says, fine, have it your way. You're not. You're not going in. Anybody of 20 and above, I, yeah, I can't remember. if It's 20 and above. I think it is 20 and above. You're out. We're wandering around for 40 years until you're all gone. All right. So let's let's hit this once more now with our little fuller understanding. Today, if you hear his voice, okay. So what do we what do we understand about that today? What can we glean that it was a today all the way back in what would that be? Something like the 14th century B.C. But that today is also a First century reality, and since we're reading it here, it's a 21st century reality. So that's the first thing to realize is that this concept of today, it is, it is today until it isn't. (laughs) Okay? And this today represents the opportunity to be saved and to enter God's rest. That's not one that's easy to wrap your head around, and neither is that rest, but that's the sense we're working with. We're going to see how the author of Hebrews kind of paints these terms for us and how they can mean any number of different things that are edifying and biblically true. Okay, but we're going to pay attention to this today, and we're going to pay attention to rest. So today, if you hear his voice, now, again, the author of Hebrews writing this to first century people, so even though he's quoting what God, you know, what was said by Moses to the people, Um, now he's the one saying it to the people. Today, if you hear his voice, it is the Holy Spirit saying this. It was him saying it then, it is him saying it now. And then to just add a, it's him saying it right now in this room. (laughs) Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now, notice God does not tempt, but he does test. That Thus, God allowed them to come back with reports of these humongous giants and there was no way they were going to win. So God puts up the test. Do they believe in me or not? Do they have faith in who I am or do they want to go with what their eyes see? And so there is a test in the wilderness and they rebel against God. They refuse to go in. So do not, you, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Do not refuse to go into that rest. What would that be? apostasy, turning away from Christ, and fear of your enemies. What were the giants going to do with them? The Canaanites? I don't know if it's really right to call them giants, big strong guys, whatever they were. What were they going to do to them? If they tried to go in? They'd attack them, right? They'd try to kill them. It's the threat of death. Okay, so what's going on here? First century... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. What's the fear? The fear for your first century Christian is if I stay a Christian, if I enter the rest, I'm going to die. Now you can see why he's laid the foundation of the one who came to destroy the one who has the power over death so that we wouldn't be slaves of fear. That's the foundation upon which he's building. Now he's articulating this theology. And the whole point then to the first century Christian is, hey, don't be afraid to go into the rest. Don't be afraid to cling to Christ and receive your heavenly reward, Don't, which is even also like a divine service kind of thing, as we'll see. But um, don't give up on this out of fear of the modern Canaanites who are going to persecute you, or oppress you, or kill you. Don't rebel. Don't apostatize. That's really the punch of this. It's genius theology. Great pastoral theology. All right, so again, don't harden your hearts as in the days of rebellion, as in the days of the testing of the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. Why? God amply and manifestly showed who he was and how he would care for them, and they still didn't trust him. And that's the parallel for us as Christians. Like God has shown us his works. My own eyes have seen the salvation. right? In word and sacrament, God has shown us his works. Um, By raising Christ and all the miracles of the first century, God has shown his works. So don't forget that. Don't see his works and then rebel anyway. All right, therefore, I was provoked with that generation. Why? Because they rebelled. They refused to go in when I told them to go in. Therefore, I gave them what they wanted. I kept them out. Okay? And I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So again, the impact here is like, don't go astray in your heart. Trust the Lord, not your fears. And know his ways. Not your own ways, which seem right in your mind, but are not right. And will lead to disaster. And then I swore in my wrath. Oof, we've got a couple of places where God swears, takes an oath. Um, and this is one of the negative places where he takes an oath in his wrath that they shall not enter my rest. They're not coming. Okay, original meaning, they're not coming into the promised land. But if you apostasy and turn away from Christ, you will not be entering his holy communion or... Heaven or the new heavens and the new earth, the whole thing is in view here, okay, so God swears in his wrath, but there are places in the scriptures where God swears an oath um, not on his wrath but in his grace and swears our salvation, and so really important because I mean is what God says is is what God says true? <laughs> I mean yes, always does he need to prove himself? no does he need to like You know, put it in all caps so that we believe it. No! Does he mean to swear by himself? No. There's there's kind of a superficial ridiculousness, like, why on earth? And then there's an even deeper, like, awe that God would swear an oath, not for his own sake, he knows what he says is true, but would swear an oath for us, that he would deign to do this for us so that we would believe him, that he's serious. It's an incredible thing. So, here a swearing towards wrath, this ought to give us a fear and trembling, lest we apostatize. We fear him more than we fear the Canaanites. We fear him more than we fear the persecutors. Okay? Um, and then elsewhere, um, we uh, love the oath that he swears for our salvation. Okay, so we're getting the rhetoric Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Okay, so what's going on here? You say, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus said, out of the heart of man come all these evil things. I haven't got rid of my evil heart. Um, That's not what the author of Hebrews is here doing. He's not going to deny that you have a sinful nature. That's just not in view. What's in view here? Are you a Christian or an apostate? Are you a believer or an unbeliever? That's what's in view here. Okay. It's binary. It's absolute. So, um, yeah, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. And here the language is actually apostene. So there you finally have it. The apostasy, the falling away. Apostasy, is uh, like you have the language of standing there, like stasis, standing, apostasy fall away from your standing, away from standing, fall. So, fall away, apostane, apostasy, which means to fall away. Yeah, so, fall away from the living God. So you can see here, this isn't a matter of like, oh, my unbelieving heart caused me to sin in some minor way, or, you know, I don't know, led me to say something to my neighbor I shouldn't have, or... My evil heart lusted after things. You know, it's not. That's not what it's in view here. What's in view is the absolute, like faith, lack of faith, belief, unbelief. But that's the whole thing. The Exodus. I mean, mm-hmm. they saw all of God's miracles on Pharaoh. They saw when he did the water. Yes. And they still. They, yeah, your they, point is you saw they saw the signs and wonders through the 10 yeah. plagues that God did in order to set them yes. free. They saw the Exodus how he opened the waters. Yes. I mean that they, they, they saw his miracles and they still and they they even go through the wilderness of sin. Mm-hmm. So I mean yeah. it's kind of right. They, it's, it's not not just sin, it's a continuation of the sin and their stubbornness not to see God. Yeah. I mean when he says I'll give you manna and you only picked one for a day, they went out and some of them took th- hoarded. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it turned all maggoty and rotten for them. Yeah, so, I mean, St. Paul says this in an even more poignantly, poignant way. St. Paul makes the same argument um, in First Corinthians 10. And I, why I say more poignant is because he, he goes after it like this, like, hey, did they all not pass through the sea and baptized in Moses? What's the implication? You've been baptized. Did they not all... Drink from the rock that was Christ and eat the manna from heaven? You have a spiritual drink from Christ, his blood and the manna of his body. Did they fall away and become apostates and be cast out of their inheritance? Yeah. Then... Don't you also? Don't, I mean, this is the real punch of St. Paul's thing because, you know, the strength of Lutheran theology over and against American evangelicalism in particular is, hey, instead of clinging to these mushy things in your heart, cling to the objective word and promises of God, baptism in the Lord's Supper. Where can that take us too far? You go, well, I can apostatize, I can live however I want, do whatever I want, grumble against God all I want, be a completely impious person, but I've got baptism in the Lord's Supper. St. Paul says, pardon me. They had baptism in the Lord's Supper, and look what happened to them. It's going to happen to you unless you repent. So, I mean, this is just one more aspect of God's not mocked, not even when you take the very things of God and the right things of God and um, and, and abuse them. You know? So you've got kind of those two sides of the coin. You don't want to apostatize by throwing these things out. That would be one error, the error of kind of American evangelicalism. The other error would be to cling to these things in an ex opera operato way. Hey, I've got these things, therefore God can't do anything to me. That, by the way, is how the whole dysfunctional priesthood of the minor, the era of the minor prophets worked. Hey, we can live and do it however we please as long as we offer these sacrifices, right? That's all God wants. As long as we, I remember my baptism and take communion, I can live however I want to live, right? St. Paul says no. Author of Hebrews here, in a different vein, but a similar wit- mode of theology says no. He's like, look... These are God's promised people, um, but they apostatized, and God took that personally. They turned away from Him; God turned away from them. If you apostatize, God's going to turn away from you. So don't. Right? <laughs> That's how it goes? Yeah, please.
1: Um, okay, I was thinking of the question, but yeah, uh, I can, I can verbalize. Get back it. to your uh, okay. you? No. Know, okay. Uh, I'm thinking of the problem in this time was that they were looking to their father Abraham and everything shadowed onto them, and our father's Abraham, and he believed, therefore we believed and are saved because of that. I, I think it's that. Don't we have that same issue in our own uh, families where uh, believing uh, husband, wife, mother, father, the children in the family sometimes look and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm brought in mm-hmm. uh, on their faith. And, uh, you know, I mean, there was an expression that says God has no grandchildren, mm-hmm. but how how do you what do you say to children in a family where they have that same kind of feeling, kind of like the Hebrew the Jews do here?
0: Mm. yeah, it's a great question uh, so the, so a lot and you see Jesus bump up against this, um, don't say to me that you're sons of Abraham you know um, the The claim was we don't need to listen to anything that anyone says because we're biological children of Abraham, and thus we're sort of like in and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Jesus is like, yeah, that's a false belief, friends. Um so you so when you have you have a parallel of like, oh yeah, I, my parents are Christian, I guess I'm a Christian. <laughs> you know. Um and I I run into this as a pastor like, um you know, I think well-meaning people My my son's going to be visiting, he was confirmed a Lutheran. Now he hasn't been to church for 70 years, but uh He'd like to take communion. And what sense is he Lutheran? (laughs) Right? In what sense is he Christian? Yeah, I I think it's um, we need to be aware of this dynamic and then try to address that to each individual person in the way that is best suited to them. But we just need to realize that this is a way in which um, people think that they can mock and deceive God Sometimes they're quite unconscious about it. Sometimes, You know, I mean, a, a true unbeliever might even think, well, my parents are Christian, therefore I'm Christian. I was raised a Christian, therefore I'm a Christian. What, what does that person need? Well, law and gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, so that they can actually come to faith. I don't know if I'm just scratching at the surface,
1: sir. Or... Well, I used to ask the question, you know, does God save households? You know, and I go into the scripture, you know, Noah's household was saved and... Uh, the Philippian uh jailer's household was saved, maybe, you know, and there are examples of that. Uh Cornelius's uh household was saved, and Abraham's all of, you know, all of his servants even got circumcised. So mm-hmm. So maybe there's, I I don't know, but it's...
0: Now, Paul makes a really hard distinction. It's not by flesh, but by faith. So where we see those households being saved, there's no reason for us to believe that they're somehow being saved by biological connection as opposed to their own faith. Yeah, I think that that's the key interpretive point um, when we look at scriptures like that. You know, but I also do think that there's... What is there something to be said about that? That There's there's an overemphasis sometimes in American Christianity on this. Have you made your personal decision for Jesus? No, really, truly, genuinely, of your own right mind, in the deepest, deepest, no, absolute deepest crevasses of your heart. You know, it's just, you know, it's like, I don't know. Ah, it's terrible. You know, I thought I was in until you started talking. (laughs) Um, So... So I think there's something to be said for, um, you know, just acknowledging when people express their faith in a simple way—that I have faith. Take, you know, taking that at face value, and then and then going for it to build on that and challenge that. And that's kind of where it says individually nuanced, depending on who you are to that person and who that person is. Try to bring them to a fuller understanding of faith. The author of Hebrews is going to address this issue that they were already having in the first century of Christians not going to church. (laughs) So, it's nothing new under the sun. Well, let's pause there. Um, We'll pick up next week. Um, Where would it be? Somewhere around verse 16? 13? Great. I'll try to make a little note so I can remember that. The Lord be with you.